Welcome to The Leverage Point. A podcast about your development and performance at work. Improvement doesn't have to be hard. Or boring. This podcast is a pragmatist guide to growth, achievement and success. Discover your leverage point. I'm Angela Lane. And I'm Sergei Gorbatov. We're researchers and practitioners in the fields of talent, human performance and behavior. And together with you, we'll translate science into leverage points. So, Sergey, what are we talking about today? Today, let's talk about advice for those who are unhappy in their roles. Doesn't strike me as an interesting topic, talking about people that are unhappy. How many people are likely to need this sort of advice? Oh, Angela, more than you think. Have you, have you seen that movie, Devil Wears Prada? I, I love that movie. And there is a scene when the character of Emily Blunt tries to self-motivate, to carry on with the day with her mantra, I love my job, I love my job, I love my job. And you know what? That's a lighter case. To understand the magnitude of the issue, we need to turn to LinkedIn research. It's scary, but uh, LinkedIn knows about us so much. It knows about us much more than our employers do. For example, LinkedIn reports that 60 to 75% of their members are passive job seekers. It means that they're not actively looking for a new role, but they would jump ship if an opportunity provides. It's like 60 to 75% of married people were on Tinder. Another example of that is actually the website Glassdoor, and that's a site for employees, and they get to review their employer. It's a really useful site, actually, if you're looking for a job and you want to do a bit of research about someone that you might work for. But going through Glassdoor comments, it can be funny and really, really sad, particularly when you read comments like, and this one is actually a quote, some days at work, I would rather watch paint dry. So they're real comments from real people about how they experience work. And so it does become clear that, you know, often people are not happy but they stay in their roles, even though they really can't give that 100% because they're not motivated. That sounds soul-destroying. Why do you think that happens? I think there's three reasons why people kind of just don't leave. And I think their inertia, you might call that learned helplessness, a perceived lack of choice, or there's competing needs, competing tensions between different motivations that they might have. So inertia, it's where you might really stay in a role simply because the kind of cost of changing just seems greater than the benefits you'll get. So you go through the motions, hoping one day things will change. Maybe you'll get a new boss or there'll be a sort of restructuring, perhaps a severance package. That's, as I said, also called learned helplessness. And it's a psychological term explaining that people in organizations become accustomed to being kind of passive observers versus having agency over their own careers. Angela, did you know where the research on learned helplessness originated? Actually, now that you ask, I, I don't think I know. No. So it's a bit of a detour, but I think that it's super interesting and fun. Psychologist Martin Seligman was conducting experiments on dogs. He built a cage divided into two compartments and put electrodes on the floor to administer electric shock. And he would shock the floor of one compartment where the dog was, and the dog being hurt would jump over the divider to safety. Then he would shock the other compartment and the dog would jump back and the dog would learn to jump from one compartment to another to avoid the pain from the electric shock. And then 
Martin Seligman did a very cruel thing. He shocked both parts of the cage at once. The dog jumped back and forth, seeking safety, but in vain. So finally, it lay down on the floor and just took it. Martin Seligman used the results of this experiment to examine further and explain how learned helplessness gets created in organizations. Sometimes, or very often, creative ideas get shut down. Initiatives get punished. Attempts at change get smashed. And the employees learn not to raise their hand, not to rock the boat, and just carry on with the small tasks that are assigned to them. No wonder they start hating their jobs after a while, while being conditioned to not trying to change their circumstances. Okay, Sergey, I can't believe you just told that story. <laughs> so I have to now, you know, uh, detour also and just tell everybody, actually, Sergey and I really love dogs. We both have dogs. We are mad about our dogs. We are never going to tell that story to Roska or Chester or Zachary. But seriously, it is an interesting story. And from the father, believe it or not, of positive psychology, so it doesn't sound very positive, but... The message is clear. Inertia and learned helplessness keep people in jobs even though they're in pain. There are some other reasons. What I want to talk to about perceived lack of choice comes from ideas that we might think of as economic ones. I don't change jobs because I need an income and finding another job might not be feasible. Maybe I'm working for the only employer in my area that needs my type of skills. Maybe my skills are a little bit out of date and so I'm struggling to find another job at a different company. Sometimes those economic issues can be compounded by kind of personal factors and the one that comes to mind is age. Maybe that's preventing me from finding a role or perhaps it's health. And that makes me think that, you know, in this kind of current moment with the COVID crisis, lots of job seekers, uh, the evidence shows, are really hunkering down and they're preferring to stay with their companies where those companies provide good health care. And I know that that is predominantly a US issue, but it does raise a super interesting point, which is the impacts of benefits on how people perceive their choice around looking for different jobs. So let me give some examples. You might think about companies that provide pension plans. Employees that might be about to hit a milestone birthday maybe feel they don't have a lot of choice other than to hang around. For some people, pay and conditions can't easily be matched when you change jobs. So an example that you're very familiar with is the tobacco industry, an example of where it's really difficult for people to match their pay and conditions in an industry that pays at a premium. There are many companies and many industries that really have been dealing in those, I'm going to call them golden handcuffs, for years. Indeed, that's quite difficult to get out of that um, golden handcuffs when, uh, you know, being trapped feels so good on the one side that uh, you would sort of be okay with weathering the bad effects on the other side. Finally, it may be a case when your personal needs are at odds. You may hate your job, but you may love your team or the job pays well so that it satisfies your need for financial stability. Remember Emily Blunt from Devil Wears Prada? You may be in love with the prestige that your job provides, but miserable because of the way your boss treats you. Whatever the reason, being in a job you hate is a grueling experience. It's 40 hours a week and sometimes more. It may cause stress or even burnout. 
So you need a strategy to deal with this situation. But before we give any advice, it's important to understand why you aren't happy. So like we said, three reasons why people choose to stay. So when we come back, let's explore what makes us unhappy in the first place. We're back. We often speak to people that are unhappy in their jobs. And we've summarized the reasons we hear in three categories. The first is that they don't like their role, the content of their work. Secondly, they don't like their boss. And finally, they don't like the environment that they're in. So the first one is when you don't like the content of your role. When we think about why someone might not like the content of their job, we use a framework from a great thinker on this topic, Tony Richardson. And in his work, he describes satisfaction with the role as coming from three factors, autonomy, variety, and learning. And he called these optimizers. They're things that you can have too little of or too much of. And if you have too little or too much, it can leave you feeling deeply dissatisfied. Don't like the boss. That's the second reason why people are unhappy. But actually, this probably should be the first one. Bad bosses are more common than crappy jobs. We have had a separate podcast on the importance of bosses. Not getting along with your manager or having a bad manager we know is bad. You could check it out and you'll hear us say, bad boss is bad business. The third element why people can be unhappy is they don't like the environment they've found themselves in. Now, that could be the team they're a part of, or it could be the organization. If it's around teams, you're probably talking about your team of peers, or it could be your internal customers or stakeholders. If you're talking about the organization, then typically you're talking about not liking the culture that you've found yourself in. And that's really hard to avoid. So, Sergey, we've covered bad bosses elsewhere. We do plan to do a podcast on working in a toxic environment. So today, I want us to focus on when you're unhappy with the content of your work. Okay, so you don't like the job content. So the first step is to figure out why. And you can use the model that Angela described earlier if you want to, autonomy, variety, and learning. And we have a link to it in the description box below. Let's start with the first element, autonomy. Tony Richardson used to describe it as having elbow room, the ability to decide how you want to do your work and to pursue it with appropriate oversight. Too little autonomy and you're micromanaged. You don't feel trusted. But too much is also a problem. You feel thrown in the deep end to sink or swim. So ask yourself, how much autonomy do I have? The second element of the framework is this idea that I get variety. Now, all of us have a different personal need for variety. Some of us really relish routine. We like to be deep experts, for example, in our speciality, whereas others would be totally bored if they thought the role was monotonous. They may love the idea of change, but like autonomy, 
We have these different needs. And if you're unhappy with your role, you need to ask yourself that Goldilocks question. Do I have enough? Do I have too much? Or do I have just the right amount? Finally, learning. Growing your knowledge and skills to perform today and be successful in the future. That's learning. Learning comes in many shapes and forms. It forms part of what makes us happy with our role. And you tend to get your greatest learning from doing something for the first time. So check in with yourself as you did with variety and autonomy. Ask yourself questions like, how many firsts have I had lately? Am I getting enough learning? Like variety and autonomy, it is possible to have too much The idea that I can never have the satisfaction of mastering a task or never feel competent or confident can be frustrating and even disheartening. So check out the handout that Sergey referred to. Score your satisfaction with the role on that motivation matrix. And remember, these are optimizers. We want you to have just the right amount. Your score would actually be zero if you had just the right amount, but you can have a negative score, too little, or a positive score, too much. And let me take the opportunity to give a special shout out to colleagues Tony Richardson and Jock McNeish, who first developed the motivational matrix. So not having enough autonomy, variety, or learning is a real problem. And some societies are already grappling with it. For example, the YouGov survey from 2015 revealed that 37% of British workers find their job meaningless, with 13% being unsure. And if you want to read up on this issue, get yourself a copy of David Graber's book, Bullshit Jobs. In our experience, the issue is more likely to be that we have too little of something, too little variety, too little learning, too little autonomy. But be aware, as we've said, you can have too much of a good thing. Everything in excess is bad, except chocolate (laughs) and dogs. Another excellent researcher and a dear friend, Rob Kaiser, referred to this, I mentioned it before, as the Goldilocks scale. So remember it, too little, too much, or just the right amount. I prefer just the right amount. Now, let's talk about step two. I prefer chocolate. (laughs) Everyone loves chocolate. So back to step two, Uh, taking action around the area of biggest need. If once you've figured why you're unhappy in the role, it's time to do something about it. So what does that issue seem to be? Is it too little autonomy? Do you feel like you can't make any decisions? Maybe your job is so rigid that it's all governed by a decision tree or or an algorithm. Or maybe the work routines have no space for creativity. Or is the issue lack of variety? You may be going through the motions and the same cycles and the same people, the contents of what you do change together with the names of the month as the time goes on, but the essence of the job remains the same. So there is something that you can do. It's a fantastic strategy, very, very useful. If you're faced with the issue of lacking autonomy or variety, and it's technically called job crafting, Sometimes people think that I could craft my job if I was in a strategic role, if I was in a creative role. But actually, this concept can apply to really anyone. Let me share an example. This example actually comes from Google. Google brought in three gurus of organizational behavior, and they went to the Google offices around the world with the goal of helping to enrich the jobs of employees who are in sales 
or administrative positions. So people who were in roles that didn't have the same freedom or status or great projects as the company's engineers. And to unlock that mindset of I can't craft my job, these researchers designed a 90-minute workshop and they introduced hundreds of Google employees to this notion that your job isn't static. Instead, it's made up of flexible building blocks. And they found examples from Google of people who were what they called intrapreneurial. That is, they created things in their current roles, a salesperson that designs, for example, a logo for a product or a project. Here's what happened. Angela, before you reveal the outcomes of the experiment at Google, let me quickly describe what job crafting is. Job crafting is actively engaging with altering the ways how you execute your role. For example, you can do task crafting by automating parts that are repetitive and boring. And as a result, you finish tasks quicker and free up time for more creative work. Or you can reframe how you relate with your job. Um, that is called cognitive crafting. You know that story of how two builders were thinking about what they were doing. One was laying bricks and the other building a cathedral. So now, Angela, back to you. Tell us about the Google experiment setup and the results. Here's what happened. Managers and co-workers rated each employee's happiness and performance before the workshop. They then came back and rated it afterwards, several weeks and later, several months afterwards. The whole experience, as I said, 90-minute workshop, but six weeks later, something amazing had happened. Googlers who were randomly assigned to think about their jobs as being malleable, as thinking about them as being those building blocks, showed a spike in happiness and performance. Employees in the control group, that is, those that didn't get to attend the workshop, didn't show any change in happiness or performance. The gains that were made in the ability of people to go beyond the job description and venture into new ideas or projects lasted for at least six months. The workshop participants were 70% more likely than their peers to get a promotion or a transition to a coveted role. By refusing to stick to their default jobs and default skills, they became happier, more effective, and ended up qualifying themselves for roles where they were a better fit. Another way to craft your job is to seek volunteer opportunities. Many companies have employee resource groups or social clubs. Maybe your company works in this local community. Look out for those types of activities too. Or get involved in projects. It's another way that you can craft your job to increase your variety. And things like volunteering, things like special projects are also adding to your learning. For example, become the treasurer of your company's social club and quickly learn about financial management. Angela, you're speaking about adding autonomy and variety. But what if the problem is too much autonomy or too much variety? In those cases, adding more will backfire. But you can also apply the same job crafting techniques we have described before. But in cases where you aren't getting the support you need or have too many projects happening to enable focus and results, then the discussion with your boss is also a good idea. And if the issue is around learning, well, the good news is it's all up to you. 
There's actually no excuse for anyone these days not to be a learner. The internet, for example, is full of help. What you might need is a bit of support around structure and deliberation. You can select any task or behavior and explore ways of how to get better at that. Then try and get as much feedback as you can. Feedback is a tremendous learning accelerator. Then the trick is to apply the learning that you've got to your role. For some of us, learning for its own sake is pretty rewarding, but for many, you'll need to find ways of practically applying the learning that you've got. Otherwise, it doesn't seem worthwhile or central to what you're doing. It may feel adjacent to your role and therefore might not actually lead to that increased satisfaction that we want to see you have in doing the role that you're doing. I would add a caveat here, a watch out of sorts. You can take control of your role. You can shape it, but you have to deliver it. So think of a role as a piece of elastic. You can stretch it, but you don't want to snap it. How can you make sure that you don't do that? Ensure that you are delivering on the outcomes. And you can check in on that. You can let your boss know that you are trying some new things and ask her the question, are you getting everything you need? And actually that might trigger another great conversation. And so the final step, step three, and this is all about acknowledging the progress that you make. One of the issues why people don't change roles is that lack of motivation or that inertia. That inertia drains our energy. So the final step, step three, it's about acknowledging your progress. Remember one of the issues why people don't change roles is that learned helplessness, that lack of momentum, that inertia, and it really drains our energy. And that lack of energy means that sometimes even when our circumstances have improved, we're really slow to internalize that progress. And so in some ways, we kind of rob ourselves of our ability to be happier earlier. So we don't want that to happen, right? So why don't you consider building in a process to check on the incremental changes you're making? Have a plan to celebrate and be grateful for any small change that makes you feel better about what you do. And the more you do that, the more you'll feel better about your job. And the more you feel better about your job, the more engaged in it you become. And that usually means that you're giving more what they call discretionary effort. Discretionary effort tends to lead to improved performance. And so all of a sudden, you've got something else you can feel great about. And that actually is the ultimate leverage point. A happier you, performing better, but without working any harder. Instead, you're just doing more of what you like. Let me sum this up. Staying in a job you hate is bad for you. It's bad for your mood, your health, and your career. And we've identified three reasons why you may be miserable. One, you don't like the role two, you don't like the boss, and three, you don't like the environment. And in this episode, we focused on what you could do if you don't like your role, because you really need to do something about it if you are unhappy. And the first step is really figuring out why. And it's likely to be around the three characteristics of your work, autonomy, variety, or learning. The second step would be around taking action 
around the area of the biggest need. And job crafting is a powerful way to change your job without actually changing roles. And the third step is acknowledging the progress. That in itself will make you more satisfied because science tells us that observing progress towards a desired goal will lead to greater satisfaction and happiness. And in conclusion, let me point out that the hidden benefit of engaging in your job and with others is building a reputation. You learn more skills, you meet new people, and these are also elements of career success, like your personal brand. Sergey, that's it for today. Thanks for listening in. Remember that small changes can lead to big impact if you find the leverage point. So keep asking yourself, what's my leverage point? If you've ever been in a situation where you really started hating a job or you know someone who is currently struggling with it, well, continue the conversation. Share this episode with them um, or share it on social media like LinkedIn or Facebook with a comment or question to the wider community. And while you're there, why not give us five stars on Apple Podcasts? Till the next one. Bye for now.